And I think we're still witnessing the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union 30 years later. Anyone who doesn't regret the passing of the Soviet Union has no heart. Anyone who wants it restored has no brains. When a fresh-faced Vladimir Putin made those comments back in 2000, Russia had only recently lost its Soviet empire and suffered a series of violent conflicts within the borders of the Russian Federation, most notably in Chechnya. Just like the rest of Europe lost its colonies in the latter half of the 20th century, Russia was forced to lose large chunks of its imperial Soviet possessions. But over the last two decades, Vladimir Putin nonetheless managed to maintain a strong influence network in Russia's near abroad, making the Russian Federation a central actor in the politics of the Caucasus in Central Asia. But the increasingly costly and unsuccessful special military operation in Ukraine, so to speak, considerably undermines Russia's might and clout. As a result, a series of border conflicts and uprisings sprang up in the former USSR, from the reheated conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan to the skirmishes between Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan. Our two guests are veteran Russian analysts. Angela Stent is a non-resident senior fellow at Brookings and a professor emerita of government and foreign service at Georgetown University. She's a former national intelligence officer on Russia and Eurasia and the author of Putin's World, Russia Against the West and With the Rest, which I can only recommend as it's one of the best Christmas presents I got and it's about to be republished with an extra chapter on the war in Ukraine. Mark Galliotti is a political scientist specialized in Russian security affairs and the director of the consultancy Mayak Intelligence. He is an honorary professor at the UCL School of Slavonic and Eastern European Studies, a senior associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute, and he's also publishing later this week Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine, which should be an incredibly timely read. For our patron section, our two experts took an in-depth look at the Russian Federation itself. War and the ramping up of conscription also sparked some major tensions within the ethnic minority groups which constitute the Russian Federation, which could upset the balance of power within the nominally Federal Federation of Russia. We also had an in-depth conversation on Russian imperialism, modern Russian nationalism, and whether Russia sees itself as a former colonial power. If you want to listen to this Patreon-exclusive conversation and get plenty of additional content week after week, you can subscribe for as little as a sandwich a month. Now, on to the show. Let's get started, let's get straight into it. Could you walk us through the events in Russia's geopolitical vicinity since the start of a war in Ukraine last February? Because it seems there's been so many issues over the past few months from Tajikistan, Armenia, uh, Kazakhstan, although that was a little bit before the invasion. Um, it seems like Russia's borders are now littered with violent conflicts, whereas not so long ago, Putin seemed to be capable of holding these tensions, you know, freezing those tensions um, to avoid them erupting. 
And Professor Stent, can you kind of walk us through what happened in the past few months? I certainly will. And I think we're still witnessing the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union 30 years later. So even before the invasion of Ukraine, uh, there was an uprising in Kazakhstan. There were two different uprisings. One was a sort of popular uprising against uh, rising prices and and bad uh, conditions, uh, living conditions. And then one was obviously an elite attempt by the Nazarbayev family against the current president, uh, Tokayev. Um, And interestingly enough, Uh, given all of the unrest there, President Tokayev asked President Putin to send in troops from the Collective Security Treaty Organization to calm things down. In fact, they were really Russian troops, and they did calm things down. So he owes the fact that he's still in office, really, to what President Putin did. Mm. Then Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan uh, have been engaged in a uh, border skirmishes and in hostilities since then. Armenia and Azerbaijan have once again uh, been at war with each other. Um, this is an ongoing conflict from you know 30 years, but particularly from a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, and so it really uh, that that neighborhood, which uh, used to look you know quite stable, uh, really is quite unstable. And Russia has been unable since the beginning of the war with Ukraine really to have any influence over this. And um, uh, Professor Galiotti, is there? Um, a tie, a link with the invasion of Ukraine and the collapse in stability in Russia's uh, near abroad, as they like to call it. I think so. I mean, this is the interesting irony that on the one hand, Russia clearly has been a force for instability where it so chooses. So, you know, one can look at not just the direct military intervention into Georgia in a so-called five-day war, but since then, pressure brought to bear there, pressure brought to bear in Moldova, and obviously Ukraine. So on the one hand, and it's obviously particularly on, on the Western flanks, it's a force for instability, but elsewhere, it absolutely has been in its own often self-interested and thuggish way, a force for stability. And particularly in Central Asia, I think this is the thing that's often not really understood is the degree to which in Central Asia, Russia was the security guarantor of choice. And it actually had been a pretty reliable and effective one. And put very, very crudely, the countries of Central Asia would look to Beijing for money and Moscow for muscle, for security. And of course, now that Moscow is so patently unable to do so, I mean, let's be perfectly honest, it's questionable whether they'd even be able to mount the kind of pretty limited military intervention that has happened in Kazakhstan these days. But now that Moscow isn't and probably won't be for the foreseeable future, it does create all kinds of security dilemmas, because although China may well be bit by bit sucked in, to be perfectly honest, Beijing has no great enthusiasm for becoming the policeman of Central Asia. So that, you know, it actually does create something of a vacuum in regional politics. Uh Uh, Professor Stent, would you be able to talk us through, if we cast our minds back to the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War, at the end of the Cold War, um, would you be able to walk us through how Russia exerted influence, both in terms of domestic politics uh, and security in those countries that were on its periphery since the end of the Cold War? Well, it's exerted, I would say, multifaceted influence. Um, First of all, you know, they were still, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, close contacts between the elites in Russia and the different 
post-Soviet states, if we're going to use that phrase, intelligence contacts, economic contacts, political contacts, and those obviously survived the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, the business ties, the economic ties have been very important, depending on the country, some in more countries, some more than others. Um, again, the intelligence links uh, have been important too. Um, and uh, and as, as Mark Galliotti was saying, uh, uh, Russia as a security provider, uh, particularly for Central Asia, w- was very important. So you really had, you've had since the collapse of the Soviet Union, a sort of post-Soviet syndrome for the last 30 years, where most of these countries um, are run by, you know, a small group of people who own most of the assets of the country. Um, uh, they are, uh, you know, not, they are undemocratic systems, some more undemocratic than, than others. Uh, Ukraine and Georgia have proved the exception to this uh, because there, whereas there's still a lot of Russian links, or there were with Ukraine until the war began, and certainly still with Georgia, um, though those two systems were a little bit more pluralistic. Um, you know, the, the political systems were very similar, and that really did enable uh, the Kremlin to to exert influence there. So. Um, it's in Central Asia. Uh, they they did have quite a lot of influence. I would say in countries like Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, uh, not so much in Turkmenistan. Belarus was a country where there's been really close links since the middle of the 1990s, since uh, Mr. Lukashenko came to power. Um, more problematic in uh, Ukraine um, and very strong links in Armenia. Again, business and other links. Mm-hmm. Uh, somewhat less so in Azerbaijan. So it's a patchwork there, but those networks of influence have have lasted for 30 years. Um, Professor Galliotti, we saw Western Europe and Central Europe uh, integrate through the European Union and through NATO. Why did Russia not try to create the same sort of structures until very recently thinking about the Eurasian Economic Union, which really only came into being in 2015? I think it's a variety of reasons. First of all, for any such union to work properly, it does have to have at least a degree of mutuality. Even if we go back to Comicon, which was the Soviet era economic structure, to again, basically the, the economic counterpart to the Warsaw Pact. On the one hand, yes, it was clearly dominated by Moscow, but on the other, it was essentially made viable on the back of quite generous subsidies that Moscow was providing, particularly in such areas as as energy. So actually, if you want to build that kind of an imperial model of of union, you're going to have to pay for it. And Moscow, to be blunt, didn't want to pay for it, didn't feel it needed to pay for it. The alternative model, of course, is one in which actually, and again, this is how the, the European Union emerged from the European Economic Community, is precisely one in which actually all the various countries regard themselves as having synergies from joining this. So it has to be much more of a a question of mutuality. And frankly, the the economic structures of the region are such not to really encourage that. Actually, many of the real partners that people want to connect with are outside of the post-Soviet space. But also, more to the point, Moscow wasn't looking for a union of equals. Moscow precisely actually regarded its... Its greatest advantage is to be found in bilateral ties with countries that by definition were smaller and poorer than itself. Now, when Putin decided on creating this Eurasian Economic Union, 
which in some ways is a slightly sort of caricatured and distorted equivalent of the old EEC, still this is seen as essentially an instrument of metropolitan control. This is more than anything else an imperial instrument, not just in terms of economic ties, but also because of the way it is structured as in some ways being more about a, a webwork of bilateral ties with Moscow, with Moscow brokering the lateral ties rather than a, a genuine union. So, I mean, I think this is it. It, it. it represented a point at which actually Putin was looking to, in effect, institutionalize his control over the region. But at least as importantly, it was about pushing back against what he felt was the encroachment primarily of the European Union, but also with other um, you know, economic connectivities, particularly to China. Um, moving on, perhaps, on the maybe not so much a kind of hard power influence that um, Russia has on those and on its near abroad, but perhaps more of a kind of a diplomatic um, role. Since the war of Ukraine, in Ukraine, as we said, Russia is no longer capable of acting as the arbiter of peace. And in quite a remarkable picture, we saw um, senior EU and national state from Europe acting as brokers between Azerbaijan and Armenia, um, which is quite a staggering when when you realize that after the first or the the last Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict, Armenia got a lot closer to Russia. How much has Russian diplomatic influence collapsed of late? And perhaps who who is benefiting from this? Um, shift in the diplomatic balance of power in the region, starting with Professor Galliotti. I would be slightly cautious about uh, declaring the death of Russian diplomatic power in the region. Mm-hmm. Yes, at the moment, there is clearly a massive, to put it bluntly, distraction in that everything is obviously focused on the, the Ukraine war. Secondly, the particular model in which Russia had sort of essentially carried out its diplomatic work within the region is now much, much less impressive and viable. Because it was this sense that Russia was the the ultimate hegemonic power in the region and could, if need be, always back up its diplomatic negotiations with military force. Now, that anyway was becoming much less plausible. I mean, actually, this is a fascinating thing about the Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict in my opinion, was more than anything else, the degree to which it signaled Turkey, essentially having successfully demonstrated that it has a stake in what up to now had been considered, by Moscow at least, to be its own strategic neighbourhood. So, you know, we've already seen this, this, this decline. The point is that obviously diplomacy really matters when you can provide one of two things, either genuine diplomatic muscle to the degree that can, can resolve conflicts, or military, economic, or other forms of muscle that actually can impose some kind of resolution. Now, Moscow clearly at the moment is not in a position to impose anything. And therefore, it comes down to its its diplomatic capacities. And there, well, you know, actually, there are degrees to which it's not even interested in competing, shall we say. You know, Armenia-Azerbaijan, for it, was in some ways a lose-lose proposition. In the previous conflict, it had managed to extricate itself with some kind of success by uh, deploying the peacekeeping force in in the the area, which meant that it still had some kind of traction. That peacekeeping force proved to be pretty ineffective, though. Uh, 
And in any case, the Russians were not in a position to actually bulk it up or similar. So I think there is a degree to which they abdicated a role. And of course, politics, much like nature, abhors a vacuum and other people will come in. But again, I, I think that we need to recognize that on the one hand, there are deep structural declines in Moscow's capacity to actually impose its own vision of the region on those individual countries that had the misfortune to be in its strategic neighborhood. But on the other hand, there is also actually just a purely temporary distraction, the fact that it doesn't have military force to deploy, it doesn't really have, in a way, the bandwidth, frankly, in amongst you know, Putin and his inner circle to involve itself in anything else at the moment. But that doesn't mean to say that Moscow has completely disappeared from the region. Mm. Professor Stent? Yeah, I would just add to that that there is a general questioning of Russia's competence. I mean, if you look at the performance of the military in the Ukraine war uh, and you uh, and, and all those twists and turns in uh, the Russian rhetoric and everything, I think that Russia's neighbors, all of them, are sort of re-examining how competent this great, you know, great power is, their great power who, who wants to be their protector. And so I think that, I mean, I would agree with Mark that they, they obviously still do have influence, but at the moment that I think people in their neighborhood are scratching their heads. And again, if you go and look at the, the body language uh, from the Shanghai Cooperation um, Organization Summit um, in Uzbekistan, and just the, the way that this, uh, these countries that are members of this have shifted the way that they're even looking at Russia. And I think that's something that we will see playing out, you know, over the next few years. Um. Maybe specifically on which which um, countries or, or entities do you think will be um, filling up that vacuum in the next few months? And although I perfectly understand your your the argument you made, Professor Galliotti, on the fact that we should be careful not to um, consider that Russian influence is is completely um, off, but given it is somewhat waning, who do you feel is going to fill that gap in the next few months? Starting with Professor Stent. Well, Turkey has already, of course, been a player uh, in the previous uh, um, Armenia-Azerbaijan clashes. Um, it has a peacekeeping role there, and it's uh, Turkey in general is trying to increase its international clout uh, as a result of the Russia-Ukraine war, and we've seen that in a number of uh, different ways, um, and to some extent, well, the the European Union as well. Um, so. Um, but I, but I think particularly if we're talking about the the post-Soviet countries, I see Turkey increasing its its influence there. Uh-huh. Professor Galliotti. Yes, I mean I think obviously it depends on on which flank we're talking about because you know we obviously yes European Union is significant on on the western flank, Turkey on the southwestern, um, clearly China. Um, in in Central Asia, but also beyond, because actually sort of China's Belt and Road Initiative has meant that it has a genuinely global footprint. And this was one of the interesting things about Ukraine. And one of the reasons why the Chinese are, to put it most bluntly, um, actually deeply ambivalent about the success of Putin's war, that they had invested very heavily in Ukraine. Ukraine was their major um, import partner for corn. Um, So actually, you know, China has a stake throughout. Beyond that, I think more, more generally, I think Turkey has kind of pioneered the way. But I think what we're actually seeing is scope for, well, 
perhaps un, un, unfairly to call them second rank powers, to also begin to to intrude and intervene. Iran, for example, also has has been looking for some kind of a of a role. India, it's quite interesting. The Indian re- relationship with with Central Asia has been developing, and and actually the the Shanghai Cooperation Organization has provided a sort of additional framework for that. But look, I mean, in some ways, this is not new. I remember, look, you know, some years back being in Baku, and that sense that you could hardly throw a stone without hitting some kind of foreign advisor or other sort of agent of influence from Israeli all the way through to Chinese. And now, obviously, that, that's Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan has oil, which makes it a certain sort of magnet for attention. But generally, I think this is, this is what we are seeing is exactly the the long attempt by Moscow to essentially, where it could not actually assert active influence, at the very least to try and squeeze out and deny other people influence. Well, I think that you know has been for for a long time decaying, and clearly that decay is very much accelerated of late. So the, the, all the various areas are parts of the uh, Russian strategic neighborhood now become fair game. Just a, um, a follow-up, because it seems that Russia's control or influence on those regions was very top-down um, rather than bottom-up. Um, was, there, was there nonetheless a Russian soft power, maybe through education, through culture, through language, that is still quite strong in those areas, and has that soft power been weakened over the last few months, starting with Professor um, Stett? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. So the Russians did exercise quite successfully soft power, I mean, depending on the country. Uh, and, you know, one of the main ways was through Russian television. So a lot of the elites, particularly uh, in the, the Russian neighborhood, uh, watched Russian TV. They got their news from Russian TV. Um, uh, I, I remember, for instance, in Kazakhstan, um, I, I wrote a book on U.S.-Russian relations that was published in Kazakh, and I went there and I was um, uh, in Astana and, and doing a panel with people, and they all said to me, you know, we've never really heard this version of the U.S.-Russian relationship, and these were all sort of professors and elites. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that's been an important means of influence, but I do believe that that's changing. And particularly in Kazakhstan, you have this movement now among particularly among young people, students, questioning the entire colonial history, right? They they were all brought up to believe that, you know, Britain and France and then the United States, we were all imperialist powers, but Russia was this kind of benevolent power. And they're now talking about uh, Russia's colonial oppression of them. They're they're revisiting a lot of these questions. Uh, there's, There's a very lively debate going on there. And so I think that particular version of soft power has been weakened by what's happening in Ukraine. And Kazakhstan is a country where, despite the fact that Putin helped uh, Tokayev stay in power, um, he has really distanced himself from what's happening there. And I suspect in a number of other countries, again, among the youth in countries like Georgia, um, you know, they're not learning Russian and they haven't been for some time as their second language. um, And they're not watching Russian TV. So I think depending on the country, um, that soft power is waning. Professor Gagliotti? Yes, very much to agree with what Angela said and just to sort of build it on. I think you know, one of the clear signs is that Moscow never really understood how soft power works. And again, to use a certain parallel, and maybe I would as a Brit, you know, it never really thought about 
the kind of dynamic that led to the Commonwealth, a way in which actually the United Kingdom was able to parley, in effect, giving countries sovereignty over themselves back, but nonetheless turned it into something positive and sought to build long-term positive cultural relations. Because you know, as, as you said in your, in your question, essentially they have tended to really rely on, as far as possible, elite capture. And one can look at, again, you know, Angela mentioned Georgia. I mean, that's a very, very clear case in point that Russia's relationships are essentially with rich and powerful Georgians. And they have done nothing to try and uh, basically endear themselves to ordinary Georgians. So you know, generally speaking, this is an area in which they, they have abdicated responsibility in terms of trying to build soft power from the bottom. But likewise, they have increasingly, I think, failed at the top. And here, I mean, Armenia is, I think, the classic case in point. Precisely, this is a country where there still were really quite positive relations with the Russians and with Russia as a state. And although, again, one can question its historicity, there was a sense that Moscow had been a protector and a patron. And then when push came to shove, and when they actually found themselves in a position in which they desperately needed a protector and a patron because of the Azeris, well, Moscow was absent. So I think in, in this respect, you know, I think it really demonstrates the weaknesses of primarily Vladimir Putin's own notions of geopolitics. You know, this is still a man who is a very 19th century figure, in my opinion, in his outlook. And part of that is exactly that a monarch talks to monarchs. You don't actually try and build those fine webworks of interconnectivities between cultures and societies that gives you real deep and enduring soft power. Over hearts and minds. Exactly. Just sort of thinking about Belarus specifically, um, there had been talk prior to the invasion, indeed after the invasion, that Vladimir Putin would seek to extend his time as president through a constitutional union with Belarus. Um, and then the protests after the rigged election emerged. Have Russia's defeats allowed Lukashenko to regain some autonomy for himself um, or is he still as dependent on Putin as he had been before? Professor Stent, starting with you. Yes, I don't really see that. I mean, if it weren't for Vladimir Putin and Russia's support, um, he wouldn't be in power anymore. He maybe has some leverage, uh, because obviously Belarus has been the launching pad for, for the initial invasion, invasion of Ukraine. And again, it's uh, there's a great focus on it in this current phase of the war. Um, but basically, he is really dependent on Russia. Um, and I think one of the constraining things has been that um, he has not been sending his own people to fight in Ukraine because he knows that there is resistance to this. In fact, there are Belarusians who, who are fighting with the Ukrainians. Uh, but I, I do not see him as having very much room for, for maneuver. Um, and, uh, and he, you know, he maybe had more before the war began, but, but he doesn't now. Yeah, I think I'd, I'd actually sort of push back slightly and, and, and present a thing, but maybe it's just simply because I have an excessive notion of Lukashenko's traditional wiliness. Because I think this is a case where on the one hand, absolutely, Lukashenko has now become dependent on Russian support ever since the, the thoroughly brutal suppression of the protests from 2020 onwards. But on the other hand, Moscow, I think, also has limited traction over Belarus, not least because there isn't really at the moment anyone who could plausibly replace him. If you look at people like Prime Minister Galavchenko or Minister of Defence Khrenin, I mean, these are definitely Lukashenko people. They're not people who actually Moscow could, could feel are likely to be its own. 
And 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 I think uh, in in the current circumstances, Lukashenko is able to chart a delicate path. I mean, we see this at the moment with the the, the word of Russian troops being deployed to to Belarus, and obviously a fear that in fact there's going to be some joint Belarus-Russian drive towards Kiev from the north. Well, that seems highly unlikely, not least because the, the military, the, the Belarusian military, do not want it, and Lukashenko is really dependent upon them. And instead, what's happening is actually this is being used as a way of trying to distract the Ukrainians, force them to send some more troops to defend against an attack that is likely never to happen, but also using Belarusian training facilities and quite possibly also training personnel to actually try and whip some of these new mobilized reservists of the Russians into shape. And in the process, we are seeing Belarusian arms stockpiles being raided by the Russians. To, to make up for their own shortfalls because of the war. So on, on one level, Belarus is, of course, absolutely required to, in effect, perform its role as not just an ally, but as a subordinate of Moscow's. But on the other hand, on the important things, in other words, about the, the deployment of troops, Lukashenko can hold the line. And I think, therefore, there, there is this kind of delicate balance. And I think it, it shows something about the way in which the, these politics are working is that precisely Moscow has considerable leverage right up to the point when it starts to look weak. And again, this is a trap of Moscow's own making. It's created these incredibly transactional and confrontational um, relationships with its allies and clients, and therefore can hardly be surprised when they also treat it equally transactionally. Hmm. Thank you both for that overview of Russia's near abroad. We're now going to talk about the Russian Federation itself, which will be available to our Patreon subscribers. Uh, so I do encourage you to subscribe to that. Zooming in on Russia itself, there has been a surge of violence and defiance of the government in various oblasts and districts, especially in Dagestan. Do we have an idea of the scale of these tensions across the Russian Federation? Uh, starting with you, Professor Stent. Hi there. It's not Professor Stent. I'm sorry. It's me. It's Francois. I just want to let you know that if you want to listen to Professor Stent's brilliant answer to Julian's question, um, you'll have to join us on Patreon. Otherwise, we'll be moving on to the outro with, with Julian. So if you want to listen to Professor Stent's brilliant answer in our conversation on Russian nationalism and Russian imperialism, um, join us on Patreon. Otherwise, see you in the outro. Francois, Mark and Angela are out. It's just the two of us now uh, discussing what I thought was a truly engrossing conversation about Russian national identity, Russian history, and its foreign policy in the near abroad for the past 30 odd years and really extending beyond that. And I think one of the elements that really stuck with me was in Professor Stent's answer in the Patreon section of our conversation about Uh. the nature of the Russian idea uh, and what it means to be Russian. Um, and I also thought Professor Galiotti had something interesting to say when contrasting the way Putin has governed Russia and the various ethnic components within the Russian state, which had been a source of tension uh, during the Soviet Union and indeed during the Romanov dynasty uh, under the Tsars. But under Putin, he has sought to govern less as an exclusive ethnic Russian and more building a Russian national identity 
of this superpower state, um, which I describe as an imperial nation state. But um, I'm not sure what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, it's it's interesting because um, Russian, that's something we talk a lot about in the Perichin section, which was really insightful and in kind of Russian national identity. But there's always been a tension, perhaps, between some kind of ethnic chauvinism and um, aspire to be a kind of larger empire than just the Russian ethnic group. And, um, and that's something especially that plagued the, the Reds in the late 1910s, early 1920s, when they were trying to build a case for, for themselves over the whites, over the other um, national groups around there. And quite often, since the ranks were heavily uh, Russian, the kind of R- Russian chauvinism would end up being an issue. And it wasn't until much later that uh, Stalin especially was kind of forceful on purging this kind of um, Russian chauvinism, at least when you were trying to make a positive case for, 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 the, um, for the Bolsheviks. Um, it's, it's not clear, however, how much of that case has really um, stuck. Now, my understanding is there isn't a huge opposition to the war, but there isn't huge enthusiasm, and that probably is uh, much more of a case in um, non-ethnic Russian areas, sorry, non-ethnic, uh, non-Russian ethnic areas um, across Russia. And, um, and I mean, you know, I, I, I gave us that, that data in the, um, in the pension section. Um, but um, if you look at uh, Buryatia, um, which is one of the regions, um, a Buryat has 7.8 times higher chances of dying in Ukraine than an ethnic Russian. And if you look at the Tuvan Republic, those odds at 10.4. Um, and so you're reaching a situation where, I mean, on paper, you know, we, we go back to some, some kind of old colonial myths that the colonial overlords would use their colonial subjects to fight their wars for them and, and, and um, shed blood for, for, the, um, for, the, uh, for the empire. But um, I, I thought it was interesting that both Mark and Angela both said the risks of those tensions kind of uh, escalating were unlikely um, and that there wasn't much available information. So I was reading a little earlier, maybe kind of a counter argument. Um, there's an article in Politico, which is entitled Russia's Breaking Point, Putin pushes, pushes arrestive regions to the brink and says how especially the mobilization of the past few weeks has been especially um, tough on those uh, ethnic republics. Um, and that there's also, you know, massive draft dodging, but more, sometimes more confrontational uh, responses to um, the drafting. And um, here we have, um, what's his name, Sergei? Yeah. Um, we've got this political scientist called Sergei, let me see, Sergei Sulemny. He's a former chief editor of um, the Russian broadcaster RBC. And he was saying there could be a real revolt it could start with a small spark. Look at what triggered the Arab Spring, a Tunisian fruit vendor setting himself on fire over injustice. Or look at Iran now, it can be something like the death of a 20-year-old Kurdish woman because she wasn't wearing hijab. Revolt is often sparked by perceived insults. So it could be a violation of religious rules or local laws. It could be drafting people who should not be conscripted, maybe for death of some of them in combat. Um, so, yeah, that's an interesting kind of counter-argument. And um, I mean, especially the religious aspect, which we haven't talked that much, but it was very strong, especially in Chechnya and in Dagestan. And 
yeah, I, I wonder, I wonder how much, how much weaker Putin's grip is going to be on those areas. You know, is this an opportunity for someone like Kadyrov to uh, carve himself even more influence than he had, than he currently has? Um, so it's it's tough to get much information on those areas, but there could be some pretty some pretty dramatic consequences um, down the road. Yes, and I think part of what is lost in this conversation is that we try to project in the next few months or the next six months and see that drastic change in Russia emerging quickly mm. because of the unprecedented nature of the disruptions to Russia's governance that has been started by this war or has resulted from the war with Ukraine. Um, but I think it's it's also important to note that if you cast your mind back to the turn of the 20th century, not that we were around for it, mm. but the Russian countryside from about 1905 to 1917 was practically ungovernable. Um, in the aftermath of the Russo-Japanese War the, mm. uh, and Bloody Sunday, you had Stolypin trying to assert control over an unruly countryside and it took just, just remind everyone who Stolipin is for those who haven't oh, sorry, um, kept yeah. up with their Russian history. He, he was he was an interior minister and prime minister under Tsar Nicholas II and was ultimately assassinated. Mm. Um, he was described as uh, Tsar Nicholas's most capable minister, um, mm. but he was so effective at stemming peasant revolts that the noose with which peasants would be hung from was known as Stolipin's necktie. Uh, to give you an indication of the brutality with which he re-established uh, czarist authority over rural parts of the country. But in reality, it never truly succeeded. And that process took years to play out. And even with technological developments and the speed with which information can flow, I think it's still important to remember that Russia is a very, very, very large country. And it will take perhaps years for these developments to fully come to fruition and for that, well, I won't say Arab Spring scenario, but for that um, regional uprising um, to take fruition. Absolutely. And just a, a last word on Stolipin. It's interesting that he, in the end, being, ended up being especially brutal to um, ensure stability in the countryside. But he was also obviously kind of a strong reformist, modernist figure in Russian politics, um, where he considered that the, the maybe not political liberalization, but at least economic liberalization was was necessary for for Russia to keep up with rest of um, rest of Europe. And uh, maybe there are some some elements of Stolypin in um, in Putin's government of the past past decades. Um, Assassinated in Kiev. Maybe, maybe, who knows? Yeah, it's. I mean, well, no, the no, whole assassination thing. Well, is... I'm not making a prediction about Putin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's the kind of thing like if you manage to predict a Putin Putin assassination, um, I mean, it's it's probably going to be a sheer luck because what kind of information are you basing yourself on? You know, um, I mean, I think I'd be arrested it's... if I got it absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, we 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 will come back to it. if if he is assassinated, you'll uh, we will just crop those five seconds and you'll look like an absolute genius. Um, Great. Thank you so much for all of you for tuning in um, for this back-to-back -back episode on the on, on Russia and Ukraine. We realise we haven't done as much as we would have liked to on that issue. And so with last, last week's episode on nuclear holocaust and this week on Russian imperialism, I think we have been catching up on that. 
Um, again, if you want to listen to the incredibly insightful Patreon section on Russian imperialism and the, the, the inner workings of the Russian Federation with the different minorities in Russia and whether they, they, they believe they belong to a common nation, um, you can subscribe for as little as five euros a month. And um, yeah, I really recommend you're essentially getting twice as much content by, by subscribing and um, some of the most juicy and um, uh, information packed parts of the conversation as well. So thank you so much to all our patrons who have been backing us. And if you would like to hear more from our guests this week, I encourage you to purchase um, Professor Angela Stent's Putin's World, Russia Against the West and With the Rest. It's a truly fascinating, insightful read on Russian history and especially recent Russian history and foreign policy. Yep. Why it's been so successful in many of its foreign policy endeavors. And then from Professor Galliotti, he's written uh, The Weaponization, uh, A Field Guide to the New Way of War, which is also especially useful in the context of how Russia initially invaded Ukraine in Crimea um, and how potential conflicts in the future might arise. So check out both of those books. And he has a new one coming on the 8th of November called uh, Putin's Wars, which ends with um, with a war in Ukraine. So that one I'm really excited to get a, a look for, look to because it's, it's incredibly relevant. And uh, yeah, looking forward to reading it. Thanks, Julian. Um, thanks to Angela and Mark for coming on the show. And to everyone, I'll see you next week. Take care.